Ah. Yep. Let's see if I can. Got it. Wow. Okay. Yep. I'm just gonna start recording. Can you pause it? That's a really good question. Let's do this. I'm Kelly, founder of Gautier Search, a specialist data science and AI search firm. And I'm Greg, former chief data scientist at Channel 4 and co-founder of Memrise. Together, we are excited to present The Data Dig, a new podcast for business leaders, hiring managers, and curious minds. In each episode, we'll dig into, dissect, and debate a new topic within the realm of data science to get informed and make new discoveries together. We might even have a few laughs along the way. Okay, here we go. What's inspiring you today? You know who's inspiring me today is, uh, and all week actually, I've been um, I've been really inspired by some of my um, some of my clients that I've been working with recently. There's one client in particular who's just really great at her job and really uncompromising with her standards. And even though that's making my job hard as a recruiter, because I'm getting a lot of rejections, I totally admire like her commitment to excellence. And she's also just like great at running her processes and is a really empathetic manager. And she just totally inspires me. What about you? Well, I was inspired by a senior engineer today. Uh, We were in the middle of a really tricky technical discussion. I think everyone was feeling a bit lost. And he... um, he sort of zoomed the discussion out uh, with the help of the product manager and, and she sort of suggested that we focus on the requirements first. And we sort of sat down and we thought through, okay, well, what is it that we're trying to do? And we didn't get to a solution at the end, but we did all feel fairly clear now about how we were going to make a decision. And uh, just seeing the two of them navigate through that conversation uh, effectively, yeah, I'm just... <laughs> I was just really glad to be working with them and feeling sort of inspired by the people I get to, um, yeah, collaborate with. Totally. That's such a skill, isn't it? To be able to zoom out of the weeds and be able to just float above it and like go back to basics. That is inspiring. I like that. Cool. So yeah, today we're talking about about hiring, which is a topic that you and I are both really passionate about, you know, and, and the reason for, for our working relationship, which is kind of cool. And so I think we both have a lot to talk about. But, you know, I want to preface our conversation by saying that, you know, there's a lot of companies out there who think they should hire data scientists, and it's not something that a company should rush into. They, I think you and I would agree that they should be set up for success before they, they start down that road. So this episode will advise on how to hire a data scientist within a company that is mature enough to hire one and also strategically capable of hiring one rather than trying to provide a one solution fits all kind of guide. This is very much for, you know, a company that knows what they want, I think, and is strategically ready to get that thing. So if you want to start hiring, the first step is to get ready to hire. You've got to define what you want your data scientist to come in and do, which means, you know, you should have clear goals for the role and desired outcomes that can be measured, I think, and aren't just like pie in the sky, sort of nice to nice to have achievements, but things that are actually related to your business and can be measured. Um, getting as clear as you can about the outcome and and what how you'll know if you succeeded at it. Yeah. Thumbs up to that. Totally. And I guess to achieve that, to make sure you're setting the right goals there, you know, you might have a data leader who was brought in to define a roadmap for hiring a whole data organization or maybe 
you know, you had a, a, a consultant or an external expert who helped you to define, you know, what you needed as your first piece of the puzzle. Maybe your data scientist is the first piece of a puzzle that hasn't kind of been defined yet. Um, but regardless, um, there should be a logical framework, I think, to work from and a, and a roadmap. You know, it shouldn't just come out of nowhere. And that data leader um, probably is the person who's going to get senior buy-in and budget and uh, everything else that the team's going to need to succeed. Exactly. Too often I've worked with candidates who are looking for a new job and come to me because their existing job felt a little aimless. Like they didn't have enough data to sink their teeth into, or it didn't feel like there was any kind of strategic vision for what they were doing in that company. So I guess I feel like it's my mission a little bit to to make sure that companies are clear on that. I um I remember being hired, and about a month after I joined, my uh, my boss said uh, just to say, actually, Greg, I'm leaving. <laughs> and uh, I liked him, so I was a bit sad about that. But I don't think I realized until after he left, oh, crikey, life without a manager, I thought it would be, you know, kind of a paradise. Great, I'll just get to get on with uh, things I think are most important. It ended up being kind of a nightmare because without <laughs> someone to help you steer, especially in a new organization, without helping you, giving you that top-down guidance and clearing a path for you and, and making clear what's important and getting you support and making sure that when you build it, that the people will be glad to receive it. Like, without someone to help you do all that stuff it, yeah it turned out to be a lot less fun and productive than I thought it would be yeah I can imagine what has your experience Greg been with getting ready to hire like when did you know it was the right time to hire someone and what was the first step you took so I guess usually I often I'd be the data science leader. So I would already have had the conversations with the CEO um, or the CTO or senior leadership where they've been saying for a while, oh, we, we see this clear need where data or machine learning or analytics would be really important. We have questions that we'd like to answer or a product that we think our uh, the market needs. And so there'd be that pull. And then we'd um, hire in response to that. It's not always that straightforward. Sometimes um, I've been brought in and there's a sense like we should be doing something with data, but we're not quite sure what yet. And then there'd be this kind of conversation about about the wider business and about trying to figure out how data could support that wider business. Only once you're fairly clear on the business goals, can you start to think really clearly about the data goals or at least uh, certainly that's the ideal. And then I can usually help them say, this is what's feasible given the state of the art. Let's, um, how about if we built that? Would you be excited in principle? Yeah, yeah, we would. And then you can start to do a spike, bring in a few people for an early investigation, or indeed start hiring a team and get cracking. Right. So there's, there's a lot of legwork that's required before you can actually pull the trigger on hiring this type of person. I think so. I think it's harder if you're if you're trying to build a data science team and you're not playing that data leader yourself. I think then you probably your first job is to hire the person who can be a bit more technical on the ground to help lead the team. Uh, but either way, yeah, there is a bunch of legwork. Otherwise, um, and this definitely happens, you kind of hire a team and the first thing they do is say, okay, let's collect and gather and clean up a bunch of data. But it ends up being unlikely to deliver value very quickly because there's not enough of a sense of what we're going to do once we've got it. You're just kind of collecting underpants with a hope that they'll eventually be profitable. That's a, that's a weird visual. 
I guess it would be if you hadn't seen the South Park episode where they have underpants gnomes <laughs> who have a three-step plan for world domination. <laughs> step one, collect the underpants. <laughs> step three, profit. Uh, but it turned out that no one had a, uh, an idea of what step two would be. I'm, I'm writing that down so I can watch that episode. Is this something that you talk about with your clients uh, before they um, before they hire? That's definitely part of my quali- qualifying process with companies that are hiring their first data scientist more than any other company, you know, because I think that that is, that is where some companies go wrong or that's where hiring processes can end up getting quite tricky or it might be hard for them to retain that person. So, you know, my questions usually involve asking about their data infrastructure and to what extent it's set up and who is currently responsible in that organization for data. If it's not, you know, someone who's employed as a data leader in that company, then it's important for me to understand what the reporting lines are going to be and also like who's going to be advocating for this person. So that's really important. Also, a really key piece, you know, not just on the technical infrastructure side, but looking at culturally, what's the company like when it when it comes to data? Is this an environment where the data scientist will not just have the right tools to do the job, but will they be, you know, like you said, empowered? through the organization and not, you know, meeting brick walls every time they want to get something done because companies aren't very data driven or aren't very data minded. So that's all part of defining the role and setting up for the process. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, so let's imagine that uh, our company has uh, ticked all those boxes and uh, it's all systems go. What's next? Well, the next logical step is to write the job description which isn't rocket science, or I guess it could be since we're talking about data science and a lot of data scientists are rocket scientists. But so many companies get it wrong, which is so surprising to me. So the job description isn't just a list of responsibilities and requirements for your job. It is a marketing document. It is your flag in the sand as a company saying, you know, we are here. This is why we're great. We are hiring data scientists, and if you're a great one, you should work for us. So many companies miss the boat on this, and competition for great data scientists is so fierce, fiercer than ever in the market. Companies really can't afford to. You know, the job description needs to sell the role. It can't just be a laundry list. You need to serve up compelling information about the company and where it's at on its journey, talk about why data science is important to the business, and make a compelling case for why someone should join. You know, often in the market, job descriptions are really samey. And I work with companies where even at director level, sometimes if you can believe it, Greg, the job description has had typos in it when I've received it. And they'd been using it as currency in the market up until I'd I'd started working with them. You know, no real time has been spent selling the company. It's too brief. There's no context. It's boring. It's just not good enough. Yeah, I can believe that. I know... Uh, when I've been as a candidate, uh, I'm a bit embarrassed to admit this, but you get the job description and your eyes kind of glaze over. And it's a bit like the Gary Larson cartoon, you know, where it's like, you know, what are we here? What are the dogs here? And I look at it, I'm like, okay, blah, blah, something machine learning. Okay, I like that word. Oh, yeah, Python. Okay, let's have a bit more of that. Something, something. Yeah, yeah, okay, looks good enough. And if it's easy, and it's just a click on apply LinkedIn, then maybe I'll do it. But if it's hard, and they want a cover letter, I'm like, meh. Whereas sometimes you get a job description that grabs you like, oh, that company sounds like I would like to be a part of it. And now I'm motivated and now I'm in. Right. And, you know, uh, it makes a huge difference. Makes a huge difference. I am on a one woman mission 
to change the way that companies attract candidates, not because it's it's just my job, but because I am super passionate about it. And actually, I often end up rewriting job descriptions for my clients with my clients in partnership with them. And I don't want to give too much of my secret sauce away, but that is a big part of what I do is I work in partnership with my clients when I'm working with them exclusively and we re- fabricate their job description so that it functions as a marketing document for the company and for the role. And we talk about not just the job, we talk about organizational structure. Like I will often put an org structure of where data science sits in the job description. And I put I put links to the manager's LinkedIn profiles on the job description so that they know who they'll be reporting to. You know, this it has to be three-dimensional to be compelling as far as I'm concerned. So my recipe for success Again, I don't want to give too much away, but if you'll allow me to just delve into it for a sec, is to be detailed but concise. So don't be pro- don't be afraid to provide context, but keep it punchy and clear. Don't be boring. Set the context. So what they do, where they're at in their journey as a company, and why they're hiring. And lots of juicy information about the company. You know, why are you different? What are your values? Like the, I love job descriptions that talk about diversity, inclusion, and equity and why they're committed to them. More and more companies do this now, but I think there's still work to be done. Responsibilities of the job obviously is a huge focus, but it shouldn't just be a laundry list of tasks. It should be project achievement and impact oriented, which is hard to like distill in one document, but those are the questions that my candidates always have. Talk to me about some of the projects they're working on or some projects they hope to work on. That's what people want to know. Often great data scientists are being courted by a handful of different companies and the most attractive opportunities are going to have the greatest projects. So in order to sell the role properly, why not include a couple of projects they're looking at in the job description? And then obviously what your requirements are, compensation and benefits, don't be shy about including this stuff. In my opinion, go to town, talk about perks because people love perks. And then also there's no reason why you can't outline the interview process on the job description. I don't know what you think, Greg, but I personally think that when you sit down to write a job description, it's like a soul searching exercise for the company. Are you really ready to hire someone? If you can't fill a job description with clear, compelling details for data scientists in the market, or if you feel a little stumped, you're probably not ready to hire a data scientist. I'd add one more thing, which is um, I'm a big fan of um, a small number of really clearly stated requirements. And that that often, to me, signals more clearly what the job is going to involve um, in terms of the experience that you need or the skills that you need um, than a whole bunch of like this role will involve blah, blah, something, something stakeholders. Like, let's let's be clear that you need especially good written English communication because you're going to be doing lots of presentations, right? Okay, that makes sense. The other thing that I've read, and I I think there's evidence for this, when faced with, you know, 10 requirements that are treated as if they're hard, apparently women are more likely to say, oh, I can only do eight out of these 10 uh, and I can't do those two. Therefore, I'm not I'm not eligible. Whereas apparently guys are more likely to say, well, I can do six out of those 10. I'm, I'm perfect for this. <laughs> right. And so uh, the conclusion I drew from this is to absolutely minimize the number of requirements that are really hard and say, yes, you must be able to do all these things. But there's only a few things that are absolutely hard. And then there's a bigger list of it'd be really nice if you can do these other things. Um, and that gives the person a sense of, of, of like the broad role, like what's core and what's, you know, peripheral. 
I've read that too. And you're, I think you're absolutely right. Well, I think that that rings true. My advice to anyone who's looking for a new job is that if you can look at a job description and say that you can do everything that they're requiring you to do, you're overqualified for the job. You should always look to apply to a job where two or three of the elements or requirements are a bit of a stretch for you because it represents a learning opportunity. You know, who wants to go and do a job that you can already do everything in the job with your hands tied behind your back? Like, that's really boring. And I don't think any employer worth their salt expects someone to waltz through the door and be able to ace it on the first day. Yeah, that makes sense. And it's probably going to lead to a more interesting candidate pool as well. Absolutely. How can a company be sure that they're taking the right angle with their job description and with the role generally? So that's an interesting question. I mean, I think there are some companies out there who are who are really plugged into what's happening in the market. Either they, you know, have a couple of data scientists in leadership roles um, who understand, you know, what 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 a great candidate would be looking for when if they were looking for a data science job um, and are able to represent that. Um, or they have a really high-flying internal recruitment team that are proactive, have great networks uh, of the right sort of candidates, so understand what, what's happening in the market, and, and that's great. Um, they will be able to help the company to tailor that job description to be super attractive and stand out from the noise. Where that isn't the case, which is, I think, in probably at least half the companies out there, you know, not to plug my own services or anything, but to plug my own services, working with a recruiter definitely gives you an advantage. Okay, so let's let's talk about that. Make the case for why someone should work with a recruiter. Well, it's really important to be tapped in to what's happening in the market generally in order to attract the right people. And that's what you get when you work with a recruiter. A recruiter's job, a specialist recruiter's job, so like me working as an AI and data science specialist recruiter, all I do all day is talk to candidates and clients who are also sometimes candidates about what they look for in an opportunity, what they get paid, you know, who they're talking to, um, you know, what, what the latest tools and techniques are. You know, that is my, that is my bread and butter. That's what I do all day long. So if a company really wants to understand how to attract the best people, then they'll talk to someone who's already talking to a lot of the best people. It's a really sort of, it's an access thing um, and it's an efficiency thing. Another obvious benefit is the recruiter or headhunter will take a lot off of the company's plate. So I think a lot of companies, I know a lot of companies underestimate how much work goes into attracting good people, especially in a candidate shy marketplace like the data science market. So ever since I started doing this in 2013, demand for data scientists has outstripped supply. And that's why there's a market for what I do. So in terms of you know, the actual work involved, it's not just, you know, I'm I'm not just a, a CV conveyor belt, you know, what I do is more nuanced than that. You know, it's about, it's about attracting and building relationships with the best candidates. And it's about, um, it's about brokering that person through the process and making sure that they get over the line in terms of accepting a job. Yeah, that, that sounds true to me. Um, so I've now been on both sides of the table multiple times and it's easier with a recruiter on both sides most of the time. Uh, I, I, I sometimes get asked, you know, does this seem like a good market price for so-and-so? Uh, 
by friends and usually I'm like you know don't ask me ask a recruiter because you know a good one will have had way more experience at all this stuff than I ever get like I only apply for a job every so often right and even then only a few at a time right and I only speak to a, a few candidates so I, I never have as good intuitions about this stuff as, as you do and oh I'll tell you the point that you made about how much work it is hiring is just an enormous amount of work yeah um and the more that I can have someone that I trust to do the bits that they can do probably better than I can. Oh my God, it's a godsend to be able to say, oh, Kelly's already sent me six CVs and it turns out that like five of them were perfect for interview candidate. And it she probably you probably went through 20 to get there. And I'm just like so glad that I didn't see the other 15 because that's just time that I don't want to be spending. Absolutely. And it's it's not even just the time that it takes and, you know, in, in a lot of people's minds, it's like, okay, you talk to candidates, you qualify them, and then you pass them over to the company and the company does the rest. But what you don't see is, you know, t- tip of the iceberg under the surface, it's, you know, maintaining that relationship with that candidate. It's making sure that they know about all the other places they're interviewing so that they can speed the process along with your company so they don't lose out. It is, uh, you know, selling the company and making a compelling case for joining when maybe that company doesn't have a great reputation in the market for whatever reason, but there's a huge opportunity from a data science perspective. Um, you know, navigating tricky salary negotiations is a huge part of the job um, that a lot of people, you know, a lot of companies think, well, I'll just offer them what they want and it'll be fine or I'll offer them what they can afford and if they don't want it, you know, whatever. But, you know, it takes a it takes a skilled negotiator to to make the magic happen. So there's so much that goes on. So I think there's a huge benefit there for sure. Also, I think an under an underrated benefit is a recruiter can advise on things like best practice and like what has worked well in other companies. If you're new to the recruitment process of hiring a data scientist, you know, maybe where other companies have gone wrong, learning from other companies' mistakes. Um, there's a huge learning benefit there as well. Okay. And I guess the final thing I'll say is that in practice, as a candidate, probably only one in 20 companies that I've applied to um, directly even reply. Like, it's kind of hilarious. Um, You can apply to all these jobs on LinkedIn and like, they literally don't reply. Even if I'm like, I'm pretty sure I'm a good candidate for this. Nothing. And so like, a good recruiter, like pretty much all the good jobs I've got in the last five years, eight years have come through recruiters and most of the best candidates. So anyway, um, I guess um, that that's why it makes sense. That's why I think we're still, you know, working together after all this time. And a good recruiter is, you know, the, the relationship is worth gold, right? Like someone you know and trust. Yeah. Anyway. 100%. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a... It's a moving, like both sides are a moving target for a recruiter and they have to, they're juggling, you know, lots of plates all the time, keeping those relationships going strong, navigating client requirements, you know, the skill set is underrated, I think. And that's why there are so many recruiters out there doing it. So, you know, I think that people who do it well naturally tend to do well in the market, but you're right. It's those, it's establishing those early, those relationships early on and maintaining them that will get you ahead. Um, it's worth saying though, that like, I'm not a technical person, but I have been working in this market for over eight years. So I'm conversant in all the latest technologies. I know, I know what my clients are looking for and I can ask the right questions as, a, as an initial filter, which is obviously key. 
but it's important that hiring managers have a clear evaluation process for their candidates from a technical standpoint. My favorite tip for helping recruiters do a brilliant job is if you can find someone technical in your organization or that you trust, uh, if you're not technical and you find someone technical who is, and try and define a half dozen uh, yes, no questions that a really good candidate will be able to answer um, yes to most, but not probably all of them. And then you can kind of hand those to the recruiter and say, ask these questions, ask the candidates to self um, report, and anybody who answers two thirds of them, yes, is probably going to be worth um, worth talking to. And those questions, some of the ones that I found useful are things like, have you worked on a code base with more than a thousand lines? Because that's a way of ensuring someone who's dealt with bigger systems rather than they're just straight out of a PhD and they've only ever written like toy minor analyses. Or um, do you routinely use uh, version control? Um, so those are both kind of software-y questions, but like anybody who doesn't is probably hasn't worked in a team, <laughs> right? Um, and so there's a few of these yes, no questions that anyone who says yes to is probably worth talking to. It's a really good point. I was actually talking to one of my clients earlier, this one I mentioned um, at the top of our episode about how we could improve the initial screening step that I was performing because we were finding that we're coming up with a lot of candidates in our in, in my recruitment process for her that are not creative enough in their thinking and not able to think laterally when they're thrown difficult challenges, data science challenges. Like they've been trained to apply certain models and techniques and they've been able to get by because the problems that they've been trying to solve are pretty standard. But in her mind, you know, the best data scientists are the ones who can think outside the box. I mean, it sounds cliche, I'm doing air quotes, but, you know, think outside the box and be able to plug in a technique that maybe is not used that often or is off the beaten track. Um, and so we're currently discussing how we can apply those types of questions or, or questions that would be more revelatory from that perspective from the outset rather than that coming to light further on down the line. So I think there is some benefit to asking, like you say, like pretty basic but revelatory questions very early on so you don't waste anyone's time. So in terms of processes, obviously the, the number of interviews and the sequence in which they happen can vary greatly. I think typically what I see with my clients is there's usually an initial kind of assessment interview and like a buy-in interview with the candidate from the hiring, with the hiring manager after I've qualified them and submitted them. Um, and then you usually have some kind of technical task that the candidate is, um, is required to do in order to assess their technical skills. And different companies do this in different ways. Greg, can you tell us a bit about what you've done that's worked well as far as technical assessment? Or if you think that technical assessments are just a fool's game and not to bother? So I've gone back and forth on them. I think where I landed is that they are a good screening mechanism and they're one signal amongst many. I think I try very hard to make sure that they don't take too long. I've, I definitely did a technical task for, um, for one company. I really, really wanted the job and I was a bit rusty on some of the stuff they asked. So it took me like 40 hours because I wanted to absolutely nail it. I wanted to absolutely nail it and I was a bit rusty and I did, but like halfway through, I'm like, I'm pretty sure this question doesn't make any sense. Like I, I but I didn't want to ask because I, like, I don't want to see dumb. Presumably other people would have said so. And eventually I talked to them about it in the interview and they're like, you know what? You're right. It doesn't really, I'm like, 
<laughs> anyway, so um, my technical tasks, I aim for them to be, it should be possible to complete them in under two hours. And so in practice, of course, you can't go very deep into the problem. So it puts a bunch of weight uh, onus on me to come up with a good problem that's diagnostic and interesting. And usually what I want them to do is just demonstrate that in an hour and a half, they can write code that works and solves the problem in a simple way. And then I ask them to think, what would uh, a better version of this look like? What are the problems with your approach? What are the potential pitfalls? Um, and sit down and, and then write me a quick description of what they did. And the reason for that is that I'm sort of, I'm asking them, how quickly can you get something qu simple done? You know, can you get to an 80-20 solution, 80% uh, of the solution in 20% of the time? Can you do that in an hour and a half, right? And someone who just knows this stuff cold will just barrel through and do something simple that works. Great. And then I ask them to describe it because in practice, written communication and communication in general is so important. And so uh, often what I'll get back is just incomprehensible. Even if I understand exactly what they did, I can't understand it when they explain it to me. And so that's a useful signal. And then I feel like I've given them fair warning that I'm now going to be able to ask them hard questions about this in the interview and expect them to have thought about it. And people that don't follow instructions are often, uh, that's also a warning. That's side. a red flag. So that's my current approach to technical, technical tasks that should be possible to do it in two hours of their time. Yeah, that seems like a, like a reasonable approach, I would think. Yeah. And also to make it fun. Um, my Channel 4 technical task was about um, UK traffic, like car traffic patterns. I'm like, this is so boring and clearly just like make work in some sense. Like, yeah. So we revised it and made it be about like um, Channel 4 TV programs and recognizing like uh, stuff from the scripts and the whatever. And that was much more fun. And candidates said, oh, this is my favorite technical task that I've done. And sold the job because that is what they'll be doing in the job. So why not give a flavor and, and make it part of the sell? You know, no brainer as far as I'm concerned. So, you know, different companies will have different ways of doing it. Most clients that I work with will have a technical task. A lot of candidates get very nervous and clammy about like whiteboard coding interviews where they're being tested and you share your screen and it's like you have to perform in the moment. That freaks a lot of people out. Um, and some candidates won't even pursue a role that involves that. So that's, I think, interesting for companies to know. I guess what I'd say about that is that um, the single best meta advice for a hiring process is as much as possible, you want the hiring process to reflect the job that they're trying to do. And so if the job that they're trying to do regularly involves lots of people watching them in high stress, like coding in high stress Hollywood conditions, <laughs> right, with a gun to their head and, you know, the, the bomb's going to go off if you don't get it working in under an hour, then you probably should have that be part of the interview process. But if that's the opposite and then what you're actually trying to do is get people into a sort of thoughtful, relaxed state where they can be long-term productive, then, you know, why put them in that situation for the interview? And see, you know, it's not diagnostic. Exactly. Foster the environment that you want them to excel in rather than crumble. Well, and also and, and t make the testing environment uh, mirror the, uh, the real world, because that's the best way to tell, will they be good at the thing in the real world? Another note, too, about getting people through the, the, the interview process, which a lot of companies don't really think about, is that you have to think about the number of candidates that you're going to consider 
as a ratio to the number of candidates you're actually going to offer the job to and make sure that you have enough of a candidate flow and be examining that process and revisiting it over the course of the process, which is, again, why it's helpful to have a recruiter because they can keep track of those numbers for you. So I read something recently where, you know, you should expect to be eliminating 50% of your candidate pool at each stage of the process. So if you think you want to make two offers at the end of the day, you know, my mental math isn't great, but you start with with 16 candidates or whatever it is if you have three stages in your process. As a recruiter, we tend to operate with an average of three to one ratio. So if you've got, if you want to get one interview, you should, you should be submitting three CVs. If you want to get one placement, you should have three offers just to kind of hedge your bets. So it's important for companies to be keeping those kind of figures in mind and not putting all their eggs in one basket when they want to try and hire. I think that makes sense. The only uh, thing I'd add to that perhaps is if I was rejecting most of the CVs that a recruiter was sending me, that would either be a sign that they're not doing their job or that I hadn't done my job in communicating my needs. So I would hope that if I've got a good relationship with the recruiter, that most of the CVs they send, I would want to interview. Absolutely. Uh, but at the later stages, yeah, rejecting, um, only keeping a third of the candidates, that sounds you know, about right. And that's another case for, you know, establishing a relationship with a recruiter, having regular, regular check-ins. I've got usually a stand and catch up with my, with my clients every week so that we can revisit all these things and see where we can improve. So what are some uh, common mistakes that you've seen employers make when they're trying to hire a data scientist? Um, well, there's a number of them. We talked about the job description. So companies being lazy with their job descriptions and not making a compelling enough case. Assuming that great candidates are theirs for the taking. So maybe being a bit too cocky about their opportunity and not keeping in mind that the best candidates usually have a lot of options. So that's, that's, a, that's something I see quite a lot. Another really big one is moving too slowly. Any good salesperson will tell you that time kills deals. And so, you know, efficiency and speed is critical. So I'm really proud to say that a placement, so I placed a senior machine learning engineer with a great company in November in two and a half weeks. And, you know, everything ran like clockwork. But one of the most important factors was that the company was prompt with feedback, was super engaged in the process and cared and devoted time and energy to bringing on that person. So the whole thing just ran really, really smoothly and they got the person they wanted, even though that person was being offered roles from other companies. Yeah, that makes sense to me. And I think it's part of, you know, good companies have good recruitment processes and, and, and that are tightly run and quick to go through. And I guess it's one of those things where if you're a large company, it's hard to do this fast but it is still possible. And if you're a smaller company, this is an edge. If you're a small company and you're slow, you've just got no excuse. You should just kick yourself in the shins and and, and try harder. Um, and I remember at Memrise, uh, my personal best was 48 hours from the moment I literally first met a candidate in a queue at a lecture to the point where they'd accepted an offer. Um, like I met them in the uh, queue, I think it was actually a queue for the bar probably. Uh, <laughs> we had a good chat. <laughs> he came in the next day, spoke to me, my co-founder, a couple of other people. He was awesome. We made him an offer and then he basically accepted it and we're like, 
bang. And he didn't even like get a chance to sort of go to talk to any of the other big companies. And that's what you're up against. Like, that's what I do when I'm serious. Totally. It's about urgency. Companies need to not stand in their own way. Like that happens so often, you know? So that's my job as a recruiter often is just like greasing the wheels and being very uh, annoying by reminding them how they, they need to move quickly. And I know, Greg, you're, you're familiar with that from me. And one other thing I think too is that's worth mentioning is that companies need to be aware of their own unconscious bias. Like that's, that's a very common mistake, you know, and, and very topical. I think right now it's really important that, that people keep that in mind and not hire all the same people, even with the greatest of intentions. Companies will say they want to hire a diverse team that's inclusive and, and, you know, is very varied and, inevitably always end up hiring the same people not because they intend to but just because it just keeps happening so i uh, i trained for years as a psychologist and um basically the conclusion about that that i had was that we don't know how our own brain works we can't introspect there's a whole bunch of stuff going on under the surface and and so there's all of these biases and prejudice and you can't kind of counteract them just by trying hard or even knowing they exist and so i think that's the reality is that whether i intend to or not uh, whatever my best intentions i am biased and the only remedy is to be blinded. So what we always used to do was ask somebody to take the names off the CVs, and you can be more extreme than that, but start with the names, um, so that you're not accidentally looking at the name and just like making a snap, you know, instant prejudice, because that's how our brains work. And um, in fact, I deliberately would have somebody else judge the technical task without knowing anything about that person. Because otherwise, you see a great CV, uh, and you think, oh, they went to blah, blah, blah. They must be really smart. And then you get a technical task from them. Oh, this is the smart person. Oh, yeah, that all looks pretty good to me. Right. And so and you can kind of feel yourself doing it and you're like, oh, no, I shouldn't be doing it. But it's impossible to undo that, um, those, those biases. And the, the only remedy that we have is to have somebody blind um, who doesn't know the names, doesn't know who's who, and judge things in as objective way as they can uh, without reference to the other facts. And you just end up with a better process and you're probably going to end up with a, a more diverse candidate pool making its way through the overall funnel. It's a really good suggestion. I might suggest to some of my clients that they start doing that. So I think we've covered a ton of ground here. As we mentioned at the top of the episode, a topic we're both very passionate about. I'm sure that came across. Next week, we're going to be talking about hiring or navigating the hiring process from the candidate's point of view. So I'm sure there'll be lots of uh, lots of interesting ground to cover then too. I'm looking forward to it. We hope you enjoyed our chat today. Thanks for listening. If you like what you heard, make sure to leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to subscribe. As always, we'd like to say a very special thanks to Misha Frankel-Duval for producing our podcast and bringing today's episode to life. Join us again in two weeks' time when we dig into, dissect, and debate a different area of the ever-changing data science landscape. Bye for now.